Good morning. Great to see you guys. Great to have you with us here at Second Service. And uh, welcome online uh, on Facebook Live if you're watching, joining us that way. Um, I just wanted to uh, just kind of take a minute and just update you. We are in week number two of a series called Wars and Walls. And so what we're doing is we're walking our way through, for the next few weeks, we're going to be walking our way through the story of Nehemiah, which is uh, a story that's told in the Old Testament of the Bible. And as we jump into the chapter we're looking at today, I bet you if we surveyed this room, I bet every single person in this room knows what it feels like to come under an attack. I'm not talking about like a physical attack, uh, you know, involving violence, although I bet some of you know what that feels like too. Uh, I'm talking about something that almost can be worse and, and have longer lasting effects in our lives oftentimes, and that's words. An attack with words, words that are spoken to us, words that are spoken about us, to other people, oftentimes have the power to wound us and cripple us in ways that nothing else really does. And so as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4 today, the question that we're going to be asking, the question this, this chapter invites us to ask is, how do you respond to an attack? How do you respond to negative words that are spoken either to you or about you? Or about you? How do you respond to that? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but that's the biggest lie your mama ever told you right there. Uh, words absolutely have the power when they're positive words spoken to us by someone who loves us and is speaking into our lives. Words have the power to launch us into our future. They, they have the power to make us dream things and believe things about our lives that are bigger than we ever would have on our own. But in the same way, words that are spoken to us that are intended to wound, and tear, intended to tear down, those words can get in our heads and affect us for years, for decades. And they can affect us in other relationships, in other areas of lives, and they can cripple us from experiencing the life that God actually has for us. And so um, this morning, we're going to look at the power of words. From a scriptural standpoint, um, when you look at the creation story, the entire story of Scripture begins with God speaking the world into creation. God, it's literally God is the, cre the curator of words. He invents words, and it's actually through God's words that the entire universe comes into being. The gospel writer John, in his prologue to his gospel, he describes Jesus by saying that Jesus was the very words of God made flesh and dwelling among us. That Jesus is literally the words of God uh, with flesh on them. And so what happens is in the creation story, when Satan, when the enemy comes to tempt Eve, and he comes to pull her away from God, what, what actually happens is Satan doesn't say anything new. Satan doesn't invent any new words. He doesn't create anything new with his words. What Satan does is he takes just the words that God had spoken already to Adam and Eve, and he twists them. That's what he does. And that's exactly what the enemy still seeks to do to you and to me today as he seeks to take God's words, what, who God says we are, who God as our Father tells us we are, and he seeks to twist those words, sometimes through the words that are spoken by other people, sometimes it's, it's through lies that we believe, that sort of we allow to get in our head and shape us, and the enemy seeks to do that. He wants to distort our reality. He wants us to see the world and twist God's words in a way that actually damages us and hurts us. And so to kind of update you where we are, we're in chapter four of Nehemiah this morning. Since we last talked, if you were here last week, you know the book of Nehemiah begins. Nehemiah gets this news 
in the citadel of Susa in the Persian Empire that the, the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. And so the temple is vulnerable as it's being rebuilt. The people of Israel who have moved back to Jerusalem are trying to rebuild the city. They're vulnerable because there is no wall that's been built. And so Nehemiah is wrecked by this. And he weeps and he prays and he seeks God. And at the end of chapter 1, he is planning, uh, he's asking for God's favor. He's planning to go before King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, and ask for his favor to begin to, to be able to return to Jerusalem and lead the effort to rebuild the city wall of Jerusalem. And so that's exactly what happens. He goes to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes not only gives him favor and says, yes, you can go and return and rebuild the wall. He gives him all these supplies. And he says, I'm actually going to make you the governor of Israel during this period of time. And he gives him supplies and he gives him uh, letters and a decree that, that allows him to go back and actually rebuild the city. And so Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem with all these supplies. He unites the people. He gets them all around him. He says, we've got this job to do. God is calling us to do this. And they begin to work on rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. It's a mile and a half long wall around the city, which doesn't sound like you know, that much or that, that long of a wall, but that would have been a huge undertaking in this day. And so the people are working together. They're united. They're focused. They're working hard and great progress is being made. Everything is going great. And then it happened like this. This is chapter four, verse one of Nehemiah. It says, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. Now, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, which is another people group that was around this area, surrounding the area of Jerusalem. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samarian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite is another group of people that's surrounding this area in Jerusalem, who was standing beside him remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Roasted. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> are you getting a sense of, of the mocking and the ridicule? Like even if a fox by itself walked along that wall, it would tear down that wall. Just making fun of them. Then I, what? Prayed. Immediate response. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. So in this moment, as the people are doing this great work, they're building the city, these these people begin to, from the surrounding areas begin to ridicule them and begin to make fun of them. And so uh, the question we're going to ask is, how does Nehemiah respond? Uh, and for us, as we think about our, our own lives, um, the question becomes, how, how do we respond when we find ourselves under attack? When someone is seeking to tear us down, to ridicule us, to mock us, when words are being spoken to us or about us, how do we respond? We see here in Nehemiah a great picture of how to respond from a godly perspective when this kind of thing happens in our lives. So the first thing, we just read it, you saw what he did, is he prayed. He, as soon as these words are spoken, he immediately takes those words and he takes them right to God. With. And you're going to see this. We said this last week. But you're going to see this again and again in the story of Nehemiah. Every single time something surfaces, he immediately turns and he takes it right to God in prayer. He offloads it to his heavenly father. 
He brings it straight to God. And that's what he does in this moment. He goes straight to God with these words, but then he does something in the prayer that we just read. And what he does is he considers the source. He considers who it is that's saying these words to him and what their motive is, what their intention is. He says, God, we're being mocked. That's what's happening here. He identifies these are enemies who who are coming and and what they're doing, they're seeking to mock us. He names it. He gives it a name. He he identifies that's what's happening. Now, why is that important? Why would it be important to to consider the source as, as you pray and as you bring it to God? The reason is because sometimes in our lives, uh, words are spoken to us that are painful or that are hard to hear. Um, they might sting a little bit, but they're being said from the perspective of someone who loves us, someone who cares deeply about us and who actually wants to help us get better. They have our best interest in mind or they have the things of God in mind when they're talking to us, right? I mean, your coach might say some things to you on the sideline that are hard to hear and that that maybe sting a little bit, but he's speaking to you as a coach to try to help you improve, to try to help you get better. That's different than the voice of the guy, the big fat shirtless guy who's painted himself blue with a hot dog and a beer in both hands screaming at you from the stands, right? It's a little different voice. One of those voices you should listen to, one of those voices you should not listen to. You should, you know, forget about it any way you can. There are times in our lives where maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's a godly friend, maybe it's even a pastor. And what they're doing is they're seeking to speak to you. And maybe what they're saying, maybe they don't say it in the best way. Maybe there's a better way they could have brought it up. But if you consider the source, what you realize is this is a person who loves me. This is a person who is trying to speak into my life because they want to help me. And they actually are trying to help me grow. They're actually trying to speak words that would help me go forward. When those moments happen, what we need to do is we need to pray about those words, take them to God, and we need to humble ourselves as we consider the source and say, man, God, is there anything in that that I need to learn from? Is there something in, maybe they didn't even say it the best way they could have, but is there anything here for me to learn and to humble myself and to surrender those words to God and surrender myself to God and say, God, would you speak into my life for that? That's what we do in those moments. Other times, the words that are being spoken to us are coming from the source of an enemy. It's a person who isn't in our life. It's the fat guy with no shirt on the, in the stands screaming things at us. It's a person in our lives who doesn't love us. They don't know us. They're not in the context of any kind of relationship with us. And maybe the place they're coming from is they're jealous. Maybe they're Maybe they're angry about their own issues. Maybe it's actually more about them than it is even about you, but they're ridiculing you. They're mocking you. They're speaking words that have the intent and the motive and the purpose to tear you down and belittle you and destroy you. And we've all had those moments in our lives. Every person in this room, we, we've at some point encountered that. We're, we're all too human to have not encountered that. And we've probably at different times done that as well to other people. And in those moments, what we're required to do is identify, this is, a, this is the voice of the enemy. And what we have to do is we can't let those words get into our head. So look at what happens, uh, verse 6 in the story. They keep building the wall, they keep going, they don't, you know, respond really to all this mocking and ridicule. And it says, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm, 
So the people are fired up. They're motivated. They're united. And they are working hard at what God has called them to do with great enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed. There it is again, immediately the response. But we prayed to our God and... He wasn't done just with praying. He's and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. So what's happening here in this moment is what often happens when we come underneath some kind of verbal attack from other people in our lives. Things are escalating. That's what happens. So it begins with these enemies are just mocking. They're just ridiculing. They're just making fun. Even a fox would you know, tear down your wall if he was walking. It's just these useless words. But now things are escalating. Now they're actually making threats. If you keep this up, we're going to come when you least expect it and we're going to fight against you. We're going to kill you. We're going to stop you from doing this. And so now things have escalated from just mocking and ridicule to now actual threats are being made against the people by these surrounding nations, these enemies. And I want you to notice in this moment, these are still just words. Nothing's happened. Nothing physical has happened. No no punches have been thrown. Nothing violent has taken place. These are all still just words, but there's this escalating nature to it. Now we're talking about threats. And so what does Nehemiah do? I mean, we've already talked about he prays. He considers the source where it's coming from, but then as things escalate to the point of threats, he actually guards against the threats. It, It says he prays, but that he doesn't just pray but he actually prays and he arms the people and they begin to guard the city day and night. Now, why is that significant? The reason I think that's significant is because oftentimes when we face a threat in our lives or we we come under attack, what we'll do is we'll pray that God will fix it and then we'll just kind of sit back and wait for him to fix it. Now, hear me, hear this. Sometimes that's the right move to make. There are times where we don't have clarity on what we should do or how we should respond. Maybe we haven't gotten direction from the Holy Spirit yet. There are times, even in, with our church, there have been times, even in this last year where we've said, man, what we need to do right now is we need to pray and ask God for direction and we need to all do that together and then we need to wait. Sometimes that is the right move. We need to step back and we need to wait and we need to let God do it because there are things only God can do and only he can accomplish. But there are other times when there is a threat in our lives, we need to pray But then there's also something that's within our power to do and within our power to act, and we need to act on that. Nehemiah doesn't just pray. He prays and guards the city against the threat day and night. There's something right there within his power to do. So you think about our lives and the threats we encounter. He doesn't just pray that he won't struggle with porn. He prays, and then he installs a filter on all his devices, He doesn't just pray that that he won't have any more depression or suicidal thoughts. He prays and asks God for that, and then he goes and talks with a counselor. He he doesn't just pray, oh, oh God, you know, will you you help me? Will you intervene in this this situation in, in my life? He doesn't just pray, God, would you help me find godly friends so I don't feel so alone anymore? God, would you help me not to have such bad influences in my life? He prays and asks God for that, and then he goes and joins a small group. Am I getting through yet? (laughs) 
All I'm saying is this. If something's happened in your life, if there's a threat in your life, if, there's, if you're under an attack, pray. Bring it to God first. There are things only God can do. But then, is there anything that you need to take action on? Is there anywhere in your life where maybe there's work for you to do? Maybe there's a step for you to take and you just haven't taken it yet. And so you ask God, oh God, will you fix this for me? But you haven't been willing to step forward and take it. Nehemiah steps forward. Not only does he pray, he considers the source, but then he also takes steps to guard against the threat. But unfortunately, even that still wasn't enough. Even doing those things wasn't enough. Look at verse 10. It says, Then the people of Judah began to complain. These are the Israelites who are working on the wall. And they said, the workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. This is an important shift in the story because now, I mean, at the beginning of the story, these negative words are coming out of the mouths of their enemies, right? But now in this moment, what's happening is it's it's actually the people of Israel. It's not the, the negative words, the complaining are actually coming out of their own mouths, Now keep in mind, these are the same group of people that just a couple sentences before this, it said they built the wall to half its height because they worked with such enthusiasm. Like they're so motivated, they're so forward thinking, they're united, they they believe it can be done and they're working hard and they, they experience all this progress and all this fruit. And just a couple verses later, they're like, oh man, there's so much rubble. Who are we kidding to think that we were gonna be able to do this by ourselves, just us against the world. It's, it's like they've, they've just completely lost all their energy. What happened? What happened in those few verses? What happened is they began to listen to the enemies, right? They began to listen to these words that were being spoken about them and to them. These threats as they began to escalate and come back to them, they're beginning to get discouraged and give out because they're actually listening to it. And that's exactly what happens to us. In fact, this is exactly how the enemy seeks to work in your life and in my life. What he does is he wants to distort our reality. So when we've had words spoken about us or or to us that, that are crippling and have wounded us, what happens is the enemy wants to begin to to distort our reality. It's almost like a dark pair of sunglasses that we put on, and suddenly we see everything through the lens of this wounded episode in our lives, these words that have been spoken to us. And so what happens is we begin to see our situation, our world through the worst things that people have said about us. We begin to see ourselves, even our own sense of worth, our own value through this lens of what people have said about us and the most awful things that have been spoken over us. And we stop seeing things for, who, for how God says we are. We stop seeing ourselves the way God sees us. We stop seeing our situation the way God sees our situation. And, and if that goes on long enough, what happens is we begin to respond out of our hurt and our fear and our brokenness, we respond out of those, those lenses that we're seeing everything through. And what God wants us to do, God wants us to respond out of our faith and who he says we are and what he says we can do. He wants us to respond out of that. But, but what happens when we start to respond in our lives out of our hurt and our fear from, from these things that have been spoken to us, watch out. 
Everything starts to go downhill in our lives when we begin to do that. When we begin to, to, to agree with the enemy, when we begin to say the same thing the enemy is saying about our lives and our situation, things begin to get worse and worse. And it's not the way God wants us to view our lives. It's not the way he wants us to live. That's a distortion of the enemy. It's the lens that he wants us to look through. So I think about my life and, and my family and where this has kind of hap, you know, recently hit us the most. Um, <clears throat> my son, Andrew, our second son, is an incredibly disciplined person. He's in great shape. Uh, he, he sets really high goals for himself with sports and grades and everything and just pushes himself really hard to accomplish these goals. And in fact, just during track season, he, he, had, he set a bunch of PRs and did really well in track. But during track season, he was getting up at like 4.30 in the morning and like making himself one of those nasty protein shakes. You know what I'm talking about? Those with all this green stuff in it. And then he was working out for like an hour in the morning before he would go to school. And he was just pushing himself. I mean, he's just disciplined. I, I can't believe how disciplined. Like, I, mean, I can't believe this kid came from me somehow. I don't understand this. Just this level of discipline and pushing himself that he has. During track season when all this was going on, he, uh, because he was motivating himself to just be the best he could, he did something. Um, I actually saw it when I went down into his bedroom one day. I noticed he had taken a note and he had written himself a handwritten note and he had taped it to the ceiling right above his bed. So in other words, when the alarm clock goes off at 4.30 in the morning and his eyes open, he looks up and he, these are the first words that he sees in the morning are these words on this note that he had written to himself. And I wrote down the, the words. Here's what the, here's what the note said. Here's what the sign said. It said, wake up and do great things. Exceed expectations and be you. Good morning. <laughs> when I, yeah, that's impressive. Okay. So when I first read those letters, those words, and I saw this note up there, I did exactly what you just did. I kind of laughed. I, I mean, it was just kind of like, wow, this is intense, man. <laughs> this, guy, this kid is so driven and so intense. And so what I did is I began to kind of tease him about it. And just all in good fun, but I began to just sort of laugh about it with him. And he and I have the kind of relationship where we tease each other. We, you know, we go back and forth and mess with each other. And so completely in that spirit, I just, I, I saw your note and I began to like, he'd come upstairs and I'd say, exceed expectations and be you. Good morning. You know, I just, just teasing him, just having fun. And he'd laugh. He laughed about it. I laughed about it. I, it was all just in good fun. And I thought things were great until... A couple weeks later, Carrie, my wife, uh, was down in his room. Andrew wasn't uh, home at the time. She was looking for something, and she thought it might be in his room. So she went down in his room, and she found behind his desk, he had taken this note down off the ceiling, and he had torn it up into like a million different little pieces, shredded it, and then he just thrown it behind his desk. And so she, while she's looking, she finds this paper and these shreds. And so she gathers them all up in her hands like this. And she comes to me and she says, I think you need to see this. And she, I remember she just holds out in her hands this like shredded up note. And I look at it and I can tell what it is. It's the note. And as soon as I saw it, and as soon as I saw what he did, it was like a knife just going into my gut. Because I knew exactly why he did that. Man, our words as fathers, you guys are so powerful. 
you know, this next week, we, as we look forward to Father's Day next Sunday, oftentimes as fathers, we don't even understand how powerful our words are and, and our, what we say as a father to our children. And in that moment, I used my words so carelessly. You know, no intent to harm him or anything, just teasing. But I, it, I just, I so carelessly, he had put those words up there in the morning because he needed words of encouragement. He was looking for words to motivate himself. And as a father, I used the power I had. Instead of speaking into that, I used my words and my power to tear him down. And I wanted so badly, as I was looking at this, this note shredded up, I wanted so badly, it was like, oh, no. I, I wanted to take back my words. I wanted to just erase it but I can't. Once those words are spoken, once you've done it, once, once they've happened, you can't just take those words back. But there is something you can do. So we'll come back to that. Let's look at what Nehemiah does. These people are discouraged. They've let the words of their enemies get in their heads. They've stopped listening. And so they're discouraged. Look at what Nehemiah does. Verse 14 says, Then as I looked over the situation... I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Most important words in this entire chapter. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, that we all returned to our work on the wall. I love that verse. And you see it through the rest of the chapter. It's like after we just kind of gathered together and remembered the Lord, remember what he said to us, our enemies, like everything they said, all the threats they were making, all the ridicule and mocking, it just came to nothing. At the end of the chapter, it's just a bunch of words. Nobody actually does anything. And we all went back to work and we all began working again on the wall. I, I love that because that's such a picture of us. That's such a picture of, of what happens to us. So Nehemiah, in this moment, he prays, he considers the source, he guards against the threat, but then at some point along the line, what he does is he takes a stand. He takes a stand. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Remember who he said you are. Remember what he told you to do. He calls them not to give in to the fear, not to listen to the voice of the enemy, but to listen to who God says they are. Remember the Lord. We have to take the same stand in our lives if we want to experience victory over the enemy. We've got to do the same thing. Now, now let me make an observation here. When I, when I say uh, he took a stand, there, there's a there's something that uh, I think is worth pointing out. Notice Nehemiah doesn't take a stand with his enemies. In other words, he doesn't come down off the wall and say, sand ballot and Tobiah, come here. I'm tired of you talking. He doesn't get into like a fight in the comment section. He doesn't go on Facebook and respond to their post. And oh, I'll show you a fox. You're the fox. I think you're, yeah, that's not what he does. It's not, and the reason he doesn't do that is because it's not worth it. Remember, this is the, this, these are the enemies. This is the fat guy with the beer and the hot dog in the stand screaming stuff. It's not worth getting into some big fight with these people. He doesn't go in to get into this. He doesn't take a stand with them and get into some big verbal fight with them. What, who does he talk to? Who does he take a stand with? I'll read it to you again. It says, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people of Israel, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who's great and glorious, and fight Fight for your families. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your households. 
he gathers, it's, he's talking to himself. He's talking to the people of Israel, his brothers and sisters. He's talking to them and he's saying, it's time that we take a stand. I'm not going to fight with them. I'm going to talk to myself. And he begins to say, let's talk about our situation. Let's talk about ourselves and our lives the way God talks about those things. And he takes a stand. And that's exactly the kind of stand we've got to take too. Something that's interesting in this passage that you don't see right away until you've kind of studied it and, and looked at kind of the bigger picture of it is you have to keep in mind at the time, the Persian army is in charge of all the peoples of this land, right? So the, the Sumerians, the Ashdodites, the Ammonites, the, all the other peoples, the Israelites too, they're all under the authority of the king of Persia. So something that happens in chapter 2, when King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, gives Nehemiah permission to go and rebuild the city wall, he gives him letters. It says in Nehemiah 2.7 that he gives Nehemiah these letters that give him authority to go and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. Why did he need that? Why was that important? In our world today, it's kind of like, why, why would that be significant? The reason is because those letters were sent around and distributed to all the other people around the area. And basically the king is saying, look, I've told Nehemiah he can rebuild this wall. Nehemiah and his people, they have authority given from me, the king, to rebuild this wall. What does that mean? It means that Tobiah and Sanballat and all the other people groups in that area had no authority to actually stop Nehemiah from building the wall. The only thing they could do was run their mouths. It's the only thing they could do was mouth off and mock and ridicule them and make threats. That was the only recourse they had. They had no authority to actually step in and make Nehemiah stop building the wall. It's the same thing for you if you are a follower of Christ. This is a picture of the authority that we've been given in Christ. Our enemy does the exact same thing to us. He has no authority to condemn you in any way, shape, or form. If you've entrusted your life to Jesus, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've surrendered your life to him, what that means is that you have been legally set free by the king. You, Galatians says you've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the new life you have through the resurrection. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are who he says you are and you can do what he says you can do. It's time to take a stand in that. It's time to take a stand. It's, the it's, it's time to start saying about your life what God says about your life. To start saying about your situation what God is saying about your situation and about what he's calling you to do, it's time to begin to take a stand and say those things. So my wife and I, we decided to take a stand. And so what we did is we literally got out tape and we sat down at the kitchen table and we taped this shredded, ripped up note together. And then I took it after we taped it up and I taped it back to his ceiling right above his bed. And then I waited. I waited for him to come home and I waited long enough to where I knew he had seen it. And then I went and I pulled him aside and I said, Hey, Andrew, uh, your mom and I noticed that you tore up that note and threw it behind your desk. And he said, Yeah, so? The teenage boy that we're dealing with here. And I said, well, I said Did you notice that we found it and we taped it back together and put it on your ceiling? He said, Yeah. I saw it. 
I said, Andrew, I want to say something to you. I said, I am so sorry for what I said to you about that note. I'm sorry I made fun of you. I'm sorry I I ridiculed you about it. I, I meant it just in good fun, just kind of the way we tease each other, but I didn't realize how that had affected you, how that had torn you down. And I said, will you forgive me for that? Will you forgive me for, for speaking that way? He was like, yeah, yeah, I guess, whatever. He acted like he didn't care and it didn't matter to him at all, but I knew better. And so then I said, Andrew, let me tell you what I see in you. Let me, let me begin to just speak. I, I said, I see someone who is disciplined. I see somebody who pours themselves into everything that they do, who sets high goals for themselves and works hard to accomplish it. Andrew, I, I, I see somebody who is respected by other people. I said, look, when you talk, when you decide to do things, other people listen. That's the gift of leadership. God has given that to you. And you have influence with other people. Other people, when you talk, when you do things, they begin to respect you. And I said, I'm so proud of you. As your father, I want you to know I'm so proud of you. And I just began to talk to him like that and just say that. Because here's the thing, I cannot undo the words that I've spoken. You can't undo words that have been spoken to you in your life and how they've affected you. You can't undo the words you've spoken to others in, in, in your own hurt and things that you've said. But what you can do is you can speak a better word. You can speak a better word. Every one of us can do that. I can do that. So here's what I want to do. I want to close this morning. The band's going to make their way back out. And before we sing, uh, I kind of went back and forth with God on, on what to do. I would love for us to take a stand. We're talking about standing up. Would you take a stand uh, here in this room? And I'd like to close by reading a passage of Scripture over you. What's interesting is um, these words about taking a stand, guarding your life against the threats, say, speaking out against what uh, has been said about you and saying what God says about you, it's not the last time that it appears in the Scriptures. In the New Testament, this concept happens as well. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, and he's speaking about what does it mean to actually put on the armor of God and to take a stand against the enemy. He uses the same exact kind of language. And so what I'd love to do is I would love to just be able to to read this passage over you. And I'd love for you to just receive it, to hear it as God speaking to you, as Paul speaking these words to you, the church. It's time to take a stand. It's time to stop seeing yourself, seeing your situation through the lens of the worst things that the enemy has spoken about you, through the lies that he's put into your head. If you know Jesus, if you've you've come to Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, and if you haven't done that, do it. Do it now. What happens is you have been bought with a price. You've been adopted as a son, as a daughter. You're a child of God, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are who he says you are. And you can do what he called you to do. So these are the words. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground. Take a stand, putting on the belt of truth. The truth is what God says about you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's his words. And put on the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the gospel, the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So receive that as God's word spoken to you and let's respond, let's sing and just respond in what he says we are.